The Press Box is here to catch you up on the latest media stories. Hosted by Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker, these guys have the insight on the biggest stories you care about. Check out The Press Box on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, View its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Hello and welcome back into the Prestige TV podcast feed. We're here to talk about marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And I'm here with the marvelous Mallory Rubin. Hi, Mallory. How are you? Oh, Joanna. I'm here in my cape, just like Abe, ready to hit the town and ready to podcast with you. <laughs> Did you swirl as you sat down at your at your desk yeah. to podcast? In my mind, I swirled. <laughs> I love that. Um, all right. So what we are here to do is to talk about the first half of the penultimate season of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, the Amazon uh, original show. So to be clear, crystal clear, here are the episodes we will be talking about. Nothing more, nothing less. Rumble on the Wonder Wheel, Billy Jones on the Orgy Lamps, Everything is Belmore, and Interesting People on Christopher Street. That's episodes one through four, all of which were either written or directed by some combination of Amy Sherman Palladino and her husband, Daniel Palladino. So that is the state of affairs. Some Gilmore Girls topics might be on the table. A little, a little light dusting of bunheads might be here as well, but that is that is what we are talking about here. So if you're not caught up to episode four of season four of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, now is your time to jump off. Um, <laughs> uh, just a quick programming note before we get into the specifics of this show to say that the Prestige TV podcast feed is like Absolutely humming right now with a lot of a lot of different shows. Um, Chris Ryan and I just wrapped up Euphoria. Mallory and Bill talked about Super Pumped. Last week, Van and I talked about Severance, great Apple Apple show. And then later this week, Jody Cantor and I will be talking about the Dropout. So, and that's just the beginning of of what's coming on this feed. There's a, there's a lot going on. So you know, tune in, find out more about all your favorite shows. Uh, but we're we're here in the Paladino verse. For, for the next foreseeable uh, hour to talk about this world. I want to ask you first, Mallory, like what your relationship is with this show, with Maisel itself. Uh, I enjoy it. I loved the first stretch of the show, like seasons one and two. I was really into it sitting down and just like falling fully into the binge, you know, working my way through many, many, many hours of this uh, family strife at a time. And I 
in season three, I think like a lot of measle viewers, you know, kept with it and enjoyed swaths of it. And like some parts of season three are among my favorites, specifically a Miami stretch featuring Lenny (laughs) that I have no doubt we'll talk about later. Uh, And there were other parts of season three that like didn't feel like they hit just something like that specific Maisel energy and brew that felt so specific to the show in the first two seasons. And that part of the season three viewing was when I started to wonder kind of what the end game of the show was, like what the ultimate goal and intent and vision of the show was. But I've never stopped enjoying watching Maisel, even when it's less successful in a given episode or a given scene or a given storyline. I'm invested ultimately in the outcome for Midge and Co. How about you? I think that's a that's a really good point. I, I think when you have a character like Midge Maisel, who we meet her at a radical transformation in her life, um, and then we want to see her sort of definitely moving on an arc towards something. And I think in the middle of an arc like that, things can start to feel a little stagnant, a little like we're circling back. And I think the beginning of this season, specifically as Midge sort of rose up the ranks and is now back down at the bottom, you know, you can sort of feel like, well, you know, what are we doing here? But I think the fact that they've announced that season five will be their last, I get really excited when we're in the an intentional end game of a series, you know, like the show, the, the showrunners know that they are aiming towards something. And so they're not going to be lollygagging around. They're going to be figuring out, you know, how to exactly get to that point. And we're going to talk about Midge as a character a little later on and why her character type specifically might engender some of that sort of, what are we doing here? Am I as invested as I want to be in this story? Um, but Maisel itself is such an interesting um, artifact on on the TV landscape because it was this huge hit for Amazon. And Amazon, you know, as they were trying to get their feet under them with their original programming, this was like a big um, Emmys contender for them, won a bunch of Emmys for Rachel Brosnahan, for Tony Shalhoub, for Alex Borstein, for your guy Luke Kirby, who plays Lenny Bruce. Um, you know, so there were, there were a couple of years there where Maisel was just sort of, you know, cleaning up at the Emmys. Um, and then, yeah, I think, I think public sentiment has waned a little bit. And I think also the two year gap between seasons, you know, obviously COVID is a factor, but I think for a lot of shows that are premiering now, even euphoria was just wrapped up. It's usually popular, but like when there's a long gap, you're sort of like, what, what happened? Or Ozark is one where we had to be like, what, wait, what happened? Where were we? What's going on? So I, I think, I think that's all, all in the mix there. I want to ask you also, I mean, I know the answer um, (laughs) because you already told me, but uh, this, this show sits in a larger sort of Amy Sherman Palladino, Daniel Palladino uh, body of work. Their most famous collaboration being Gilmore Girls, obviously. Um, But then there's the short-lived Bunheads, which I actually really loved. Um, uh, You know, that, that is like sort of a cult favorite. And I think when you start, as with any TV creator, when you start lining up, especially like if you, once you have three, three, three trees make a road, you start to see sort of the trends and the patterns Gilmore Girls ran for a really long time at a time when we were doing, you know, 22 episode, 24 episode seasons. Um, Bunheads is, I think, one and a half seasons, something like that. Very short. Um, And I think this Maisel might end up being sort of just right, you know, like just in in the middle. Do you have I, I think you haven't watched these other shows, but do you have a sense 
of the larger sort of quirky candy colored world uh, that these these folks have been creating for reasons that I can't quite explain to myself or other people just never watched Gilmore Girls um, even though like a lot of people who I know and, and more importantly trust love it yeah <laughs> and it's like a very important part of their lives so I have no doubt I would enjoy it I just kind of I don't know I just like missed it it's just one of those in my life that I just missed Despite not having watched it, and, and similarly, I did not watch Bunheads, but it's like adored by many people who I I, I think value people and cherish. Seen Bunheads, <laughs> love Bunheads. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have no doubt that I would really enjoy that. Gilmore Girls, even though it wasn't something that I watch, you know, I've seen. You sort of like it feels like one of those shows that you just absorb via osmosis, at least to some extent. Like I think I have a fair working knowledge of certainly the characters, but also like beyond that, their dynamics. Who, who dated whom and when, you know, my, my stepmom, uh, discovered Gilmore girls late and became really passionate about it and like watched all of it on DVD <laughs> and Love just loved it so much. And so I, I absorbed a little bit of it during, during that run, but yeah, I just, uh, I don't know. They're not a, not a part of my life, but I, I feel sure I'd like them. What about you? Are you a big, uh, are you a big Gilmore girls like Rory Stan? I have such a complicated relationship with Gilmore Girls. And I think like Maisel, like it has, it has three, I think, really strong seasons. And then as with any show where someone's in high school, uh, when they move to college, it gets a little tougher. And then I think also the show moves away. I think most people who watch that show and even who then watch the revival uh, that was recently on Netflix, Year in the Life, I think it underscores... Um, some problems with these central Paladino heroines because there is this, you know, there's this zippy screwball comedy banter, 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 um, you know, thing that she brings to all of her writing and all of her characters. Amy, Amy is like the predominant creative here. I don't want to discount Daniel, but like Amy Sherman Paladino is like the driving force in all of this. And like, you know, their production company uh, is called what Dorothy Parker sat here or something like that. You know, like that they're chasing the Algonquin round table, zippy screwball comedy sort of uh, situation. But in the, at the center of all these stories are these privileged white women who uh, become increasingly unself-aware of they're charming. They're so charming. And you want to spend time with them. They're so charming. But increasingly, that that charm starts to wear thin when they have complete lack of awareness of how their actions affect the world around them. And I think that's a big critique that's hanging around Maisel right now. It's not a show that... And I, and I would say, you know, like sometimes when, when, when people get sort of like social and political about a show and someone else says like, can, can we just watch the show and not talk about this? I'm like, okay, for Gilmore Girls, maybe I, I, could, I could see that. If, if that's how you choose to ingest television. But Maisel is trying to engage with some of these social issues, like as, um, as a period piece, it's trying to engage with racism, it's trying to engage with homophobia. And so then it is it is opening the door and inviting you to come in and sit down and have these conversations about Midge Maisel and how she interacts with all that. Does that, how does that sit with you? Yeah, I think that, I think that you're completely right. You know, the origin story for, the midge that we're spending time with and one of the central 
lenses through which her story is explored, but also the central dynamics of the show is examining the gender dynamics in society and the expect and, and, and inside of the family unit too, and then how that uh, unfurls across society from everything from the way you would conduct yourself in your private life at home through what your opportunities would be in the workplace, through the way other people perceive you, on and on and on, right? And so because that is core and, and really like elemental to Midge's journey, including in this season, which, you know, in the early installment centers on the idea of just disrupting the industry entirely, seeking to actually affect yeah. some sort of change that would facilitate much of what Midge and Susie are trying to pursue. I think the way you put it is right. It's difficult then to cease to see the rest of the world and universe of the show through the same lens when that's kind of central to the protagonist's yeah. mission. And I think also, um, I think season three ended in a way, you know, this picks up exactly where season three left off. We're in 19, early 1960. The show started in 1959. Not that much time has passed on the sh in, in the world of the show itself. I think it started in 1959. We're now in 1960. And, um, and you know, Midge has just been dumped from this tour. And it starts with her saying, like, revenge, right? I want revenge. But when we think about the circumstances that brought her here, it was because she went on stage and quasi-outed um, a gay black, you know, singer in 1960. <laughs> You're just like, um, the where I wanted Midge to be at the beginning of the season was a little bit more self-reflective of what she did there. And it is very possible that she's going to get there. My concern is Rory Gilmore, who over the course of the Gilmore Girls only got less self-aware uh, and not more. And so that that's that's sort of a cautionary. And I don't know if Amy Sherman, like Gilmore Girls, hugely popular show. Um, Maze a little hugely popular show and a show that I I like. And there's a lot that I like. And basically, if this were like, I think Alex Bornstein is incredible. And this, if this were like called the marvelous Susie Meyerson, like it would be even more my favorite show. You know what I mean? So, um, there's so much to love in this show and it is aesthetically beautiful. And as a huge fan of musicals myself, something that I love that Amy Sherman Palladino does is like every scene feels like it could, everyone could burst into song at almost any moment. She's, she's just sort of like, edging musical at, at any given moment uh, in all of her content. And so um, that's something that I personally love. But I but I think where we find Midge here, where she is just the aggrieved party, I don't know if the show is trying to do something with that where they are saying, look mm. how unself-aware she is, or if the show itself is unself-aware. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I think that'll be interesting to track. Certainly in the you know, this is the mid-season check-in. So over the next two weeks, we'll get the final four installments of season four. And then at that point, we're only going to have presumably eight episodes left. Eight, could be nine, could be 10. But, you know, we're we're in that that final stretch of story, as you noted earlier. And so I think if that is intentional and there is either some sort of like additional active reckoning for Midge or Midge or other characters are really grappling with the sometimes presence of hypocrisy or the dissonance that's at play in Midge's life, I think that could be really compelling and interesting to watch because 
so much of Midge's worldview is oriented around pursuing something that she thinks she, but also women, deserve and have not been given the opportunity to get. And so we are, of course, aligned with her in that respect. And then when she basically fails to apply that same empathy and awareness to other people and this like myopic, very self-centered worldview creeps in, it I, I think it would be great to see Midge have to confront that really actively in this final stretch as she's moving toward whatever ascent is presumably to come, though maybe that's not the story that we're watching. I, I would be a little surprised by that, I guess. I have a theory. I have a theory. Well, we'll, we'll get into my like theory of where this is all heading. Well, the only other thing I was going to say is that one of the one of the interesting dynamics in the show, which again is like something I, I I really enjoy the show, and one of the main reasons is because the the interplay and the dynamics between the characters, either in uh, a given duo like Midge and Susie, or in a group dynamic like you know Midge and her and her folks and their whole. <laughs> reconvene department <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> saga there. Many of the characters who in another story would push Midge or challenge Midge have their own version of that, like that completely self-absorbed view. And so that's one of the things I'm really genuinely eager to track over the remaining episodes is who else kind of emerges from their version of this kind of all-consuming cocoon so that they can kind of help each other improve and grow. And yeah. I think that the show is certainly at its best capable of imbuing the overall comic tone and like ribald tone of the show that is so central to its charm and it's just vibe and pace and energy that sensibility can remain completely intact while also pushing the characters to evolve. Like that's ultimately what's going to make it a really interesting story in the end. Absolutely. Like I, I'm not, I'm not looking for this to change into a heavy drama at any given point, but I think within <laughs> right. the world of, of, of candy colored comedy, there is, there is room for, for some of that. Um, let's, let's just run really quickly through some of the beats of the story so far so that folks are oriented. So, you know, Midge moves in with her folks, get her, gets her apartment back. Just um, incredible. All of that. Unbelievable. Um, <laughs> the whole, we're going to tell people that we bought this place back for you. <laughs> one of my favorite, <laughs> one of my favorite developments of the season so yeah. far. Truly hysterical. Uh, <laughs> such an amazing insight into their a recurring insight into their family dynamic. But the apartment is interesting too, because it ta I do think it connects to what we're saying. It's like the apartment is a character they're, the family's version of New York as a character. And so what does it mean for Midge to sort of willfully set out with intention to return to the past, to return to the familiar, to return for that thing that felt like something she wasn't ready to move beyond? Can she recraft that aspect of her former life while also moving forward in other ways? Right. The Pyrex is back on the shelf. Like that's literally something that that's happens. A lot, of, a lot of bruises from the rearranged <laughs> bedroom furniture. My goodness. <laughs> Um, speaking of rearranged bedroom situations, Joel, Joel is dating, uh, May Lynn, uh, the woman that he met last season running his club. His club seems to be going swimmingly. We'll talk about Mallory's personal enmity towards Joel in a bit. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Midge, uh, Midge is determined to build her own thing. So she joins, she becomes a comic at this burlesque club called the Wolford, um, which she sets about sort of revamping in a very, um, I don't know. It reminds me of Emma from uh, Jane Austen's Emma or um, 
cold copper farm. Anyway, like these whole, these heroines who just come in and are sort of like, I can fix this um, kind of thing. Uh, here we get one of our many, many guest stars of the season. Um, the great Santino Fontana, one of my all-time favorites, uh, shows up as Boise, the sort of club's man- beleaguered club's manager. And if he doesn't get to sing... Tony award-winning Santino Fontana. If he doesn't get to sing, it will be it'll be a crime of nature. How are you feeling about the Burlesque Club uh, situation? No, I'm enjoying it so far. You know, it was great to see our guy Lenny pop up in episode three. I think it's a, a fascinating, it's a fascinating setting for Midge because it really sends to the fore the things about Midge that are wonderful and that we're so drawn to, and the things that you're like, oh. <laughs> Why do you have to do things this way? And even just the way that she's seeking to enact a lot of change very quickly kind of highlights that because there's a, there's a lot that's admirable. You know, the way that she like says, you will not interact with the women in this establishment this way. You will knock on this door. You will not say like, get your, move your, you ass. Know, your, move your ass right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. and all of that. But in the, and so, so that's all good. In this broader way, the fact that Midge always thinks she knows best and like always thinks that she sees a path forward that other people don't is is simultaneously it's like inherent to her nature. And it's simultaneously part of why she has been able to forge this really unique path of individual pursuit and also part of why she keeps kind of making her way like off the road into the shoulder, you know, because when you're constantly telling the other people around you that they're wrong or that, you know, better. And listen, that's someone who often likes to say to people in my life, like, <laughs> you're wrong. And I know better. I know for a fact that this can be very alienating for other people. <laughs> this is how this is how you wind up in the orchestra pit, Mal. You're going to fall right into the orchestra yeah, pit. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, <laughs> Meanwhile, Rose is working on her matchmaking business, which might wind up being like the biggest income this family has coming, possibly. Uh, so shout out to her. Um, and then Abe, uh, this is one, I mean, Tony Chaloub is like one of my all-time favorite human beings in the world. Uh, but Abe, Abe has become a theater critic at the Village Voice. Gilmore yeah, Girls. The uh, instantly Gilmore- <laughs> classic one-line review, your mother might like it. <laughs> <laughs> when so he turned funny. that in, I was like, I was like, was that's actually kind of perfect. Like, I mean, I my, like, you know what my takeaway was? Abe yeah. is ready for Twitter. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got his, <laughs> his hot takes ready to fire yeah. off. But that's a perfect damning with fake praise. Your mother might like it. What a perfect review. Uh, Chris, Chris Eichmann is playing his his editor. Chris is um, obviously from the Whit Stillman world that also deals with the whole like zingy uh screwball comedy vibe but um he also he was on gilmore girls he's a gilmore girls uh, alum he's in the paladino verse um the greenwich village the way in which this show which is dealt with uh different neighborhoods of of new york in the past is really leading into the greenwich village between the village voice and you know the christopher street uh interlude in episode four like really leaning into the village as a character, a world to explore this season. It feels like New York has always been, uh, you know, a character on the show and that, in that sort of like boring way that people say it, but like the, the village being part of it feels like this, the encroachment of the sixties, um, you know, in, in a way beyond just in the gas, in the gaslight club, but like beyond that, do you know what I mean? So 
Um, Susie, my girl, my, my absolute fave, uh, is setting up Myerson and Associates. She's got an office, but she also has a uh, hitman, uh, backers. I'm worried so about I'm, uh, Susie. I'm very concerned. Worried. <laughs> I'm, I'm concerned. Very worried about yeah. this. I love the entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's wonderful to see Susie really moving forward with her business plans, fixing the desk herself, et cetera. I, you know, I, a cut to the a cut to the mob. It's uh, it doesn't bode well. <laughs> they, those guys should have like like they could have been literally twirling mustaches that they don't have, and Susie would not have noticed that they were just sort of like we just want to cut. It's fine. But again, it's like of a piece because the character who we're dr- really drawn to and enjoy spending time with and watching kind of keeps making like a version of the same mistake. You know, Susie coming out of gambling away Mitch's money, right, and True. becoming embroiled in a arson insurance scheme and everything else that that happened. That she pimps her sister out to get out of. Yeah. Yeah. Like you'd think, all right, I'm going to work really hard to be aware of uh, who and how my money is entangled in any way with the world around me. But no, not so. It's like, there's a lot of space here. And uh, once I fix that toilet, we'll be, we'll be ready to roll. (laughs) So (laughs) worried Um, about Susie. (laughs) Her roster thus far appears to be Midge, uh, Jane Lynch's character Sophie, and um, a, a magician named Alfie, who she met uh, in in the pilot, get, played by uh, Broadway star Gideon Glick. Um, Sophie in, back much to Susie's chagrin, though. Yeah, but but also to my enjoyment, so Sophie back in a recurring, not main role in this season. I think last season, uh, one of the wrong alleyways that last season went down was like a little too much time uh in the world of Sophie. So um with much love and respect to Jane Lynch. Um and then Alfie, this magician that Susie meets, who who sort of hypnotizes her into a calendar briefly, and this very interesting surreal moment that that isn't really has not been part of the world of Mrs. Maisel. And I'm wondering if his hypnotism act, whatever it may be in the future will allow for more of those moments. Like if the show wants to get a little weirder, it, he, he, yeah, I think it could be a fun little venue for that. I have no idea. Um, as I said, we have not seen beyond these first four episodes. I just think that could be a fun thing to do. And then also the other aspect of Susie that is explored in, in, um, the last of the four episodes that we talked about, um, is Susie's sexuality. It's something that the show is not ever confronted head on Midge, absolutely bungles her way uh through this with good intentions that's the midge way um but we get the christopher street interlude christopher street so 1960 we're in 1960 midge roaming around like yelling about gay clubs essentially in 1960 when people could still you know get arrested for for being gay is classic midge honestly but I don't know if this is um, how much we're wanting to sort of dabble in a preview. But but the the Stonewall riots, uh, Stonewall the Stonewall Inn is on Christopher Street, so that's like this is this is an epicenter. John Waters shows up in this little like John Waters cameo as essentially time traveling John Waters. Um, you know, so so again, the show is interested in engaging with gay culture and gay history. Um, to what end is, is the question that, that I have right now, you know? Interesting. Yeah. Uh, first of all, just seeing John, John Waters, just incredible. Uh, more broadly to the, to the Stonewall point, which is a great one. 
So that that's 69. Yeah. Nine years from now. Yeah. How much? I, I want to circle back to the Midge Susie the, the, uh, development in a second, but that makes me wonder, like, how how much time, especially given what you just said about how compressed the time frame has been inside of the show so far, how much time do you think the show is ultimately going to cover before it concludes? Because also, if we think about Lenny, who we'll talk about in a minute and where we're marching toward there, there's a very key event in 66, which on the one hand feels like the pace at which the show has moved so far, we won't make it to 66 inside of this fictional universe, but maybe things will accelerate in the end here. What, what do you think? I think we might get a few more years before we go, but I, I don't, I don't think we're getting to 66 and I certainly don't think we're getting to 69. Like, uh, unless there is like a finale sort of speed through things. I don't think the show, this is not a show that wants to do the Stonewall riots. I think this is a show that just wants to say, Hey, we're on Christopher street and we know what that means for gay history, you know? Um, but 66 is a question. Um, so let's talk about Lenny Bruce. So Lenny Bruce, um, Luke Kirby, your favorite of mine. We love him. Sensational. <laughs> um, Luke, <laughs> Lenny Bruce, Lenny Bruce is an anomaly in the show because though the show is a historical piece, um, you know, Kennedy's running for president. Like that's, that's a real factual historical thing that's happening in this season. The other character, showbiz characters that we've met have all been composite characters. Uh, as far as I know. Um, Sophie Lennon, Shia Baldwin, et cetera. Those are all composite characters. Lenny Bruce is the only like real world uh, famous, you know, person who's in, in the show. My understanding is that he was only supposed to be in the first episode, but uh, Luke Kirby was so charming and good and his chemistry with Rachel Brosnahan as Midge was so electric that they brought him back and brought him back. He won an Emmy and now he's a series regular. He's not just like a recurring this season. He's a, a series regular. You wouldn't so know it say, by the end. You wouldn't know uh, it. <laughs> we're four episodes in and he's been in one episode. What's going well, like on? One, one third of one episode. It's an outrage. Um, but as you say, um, Lenny, the real Lenny Bruce uh, died from a drug overdose in 66. Um, again, I don't know that they're going to get there or do that. Um, but it is a shadow that's hanging over all of this. And 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 the Paladino world has never shied away from, uh, you know, shipping and will they, won't they? And you can, you know, any Gilmore Girls fan will sit you down and give a long, long treatise on which of Rory's boyfriends was better for her and stuff like that. Like that's part of watching an Amy Sherman Palladino show. So the idea that like shipping Lenny Bruce and Midge Maisel is not missing the point of the show. That's, that's, that's baked into all of this. Um, you know, so, so how does that, how does that feel to you to have like Something that I know that you're really excited about that you're engaged in the show and has this sort of ominous thing hanging over it, you know? Yeah, I think because of the larger the observation you just made about how many of the figures from the show are composites, it almost allows you as a viewer to like light yourself off the hook for thinking about some of the darker aspects of a real a real life and a real person's history. I will say that while the idea of Lenny and Midge hooking up would certainly be complicated for them inside of the show, it is uncomplicated for me as a viewer. <laughs> it's something that I badly, badly want. And it's they're already like pretty high on my personal 
will they or won't they like wish list power rankings. I just think that the chemistry that Rachel Brosnahan and Luke Kirby have is transcendent. <laughs> like you feel like your television screen is going to explode. It's always been a joy to watch them together. I think that I think that Brosnahan has talked about this in interviews before. How uh, I'm, I'm, I want to say that I read this, read this in an Entertainment Weekly piece uh, that was actually largely centered around Kirby talking about how the show would move toward a realer uh, a version of Lenny that's uh, closer to the to the real version this season. Um, and there was a line in there from Brosnahan about how the scenes between Midge and Lenny are the ones that are like allowed to operate at a different pace, and that just really kind of clarified for me why I find their interactions so gripping. They are moving, on the one hand, there's this like rapid, fast-moving wit between them when they're doing a bit or playing out some improv. But they move like with a slowness around each other. Like it feels like everything about Midge's life just eases when they're together. And there's this interesting dynamic because, of course, he's like a big believer in her and a proponent of her comedy and this guide through this world, not only of comedy, but of fame, right? And of all of the trappings of trying to make it in that industry. The Miami sequence in season three is one of the most gripping (laughs) sequences, not only in this show, but in a long time. My favorite moment, I mean, there are a lot of moments that are great, but it's not even when they're standing at the door of his hotel and you're like, are they going to, are they going to kiss? Are they going to sleep together? Are we as badly as you want that to happen? Are we ready for it? Because we don't want the tension to subside. When he opens the door of his like cabana that he's living in and the bed is just (laughs) right there. Great framing. But the single moment that I think best encapsulates it is the swing shot in the club where we, we see them just looking at each other at the table and like the ferocity (laughs) of longing is just a really amazing thing. And so I do not think it would be again uncomplicated if inside of the story they found their way to each other. But I think it's something that viewers of the show are, are badly hoping for. Something that I really love is that you and I, when we decided we were going to do this, <laughs> we're like, you know, we're, we're a little busy this week. We're not going to do a full rewatch of Maisel. Like we don't we don't have time to do that, unfortunately. But you and I independently chose <laughs> to watch the exact same, yeah. watch the exact same <laughs> season three episode, which is yeah. Lenny, Lenny and uh, so Midge. Uh, in Miami. Um, yeah, it's incredible. And that's only like, I remembered that being the full episode. That's only like a third of that episode, yeah. you know, at, yeah, it's at just most. Like the final stretch. Yeah. Um, and it is, it's electric. And, um, the thing that, that is so beautiful about that, which, which, you know, for old school, uh, lovers of Gilmore girls, I think it's a reason when, when people put, uh, Mila Ventimiglia's character, Jess Mariano, who we're, we're going to talk about Mila in a second, but like when they put him as the number one Rory boyfriend, it's because it's a meeting of true minds. It's like a game recognized game sort of thing. And the way in which they play and barb with each other, um, you can just see this joy on their face knowing that they can go as fast as they care uh, or as obscure as they as they want to and knows that the other person is keeping pace with them. Um, it's It's a really beautiful 
a really beautiful thing, you know? That's 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 so well put. Like, you know the moment, again, when they're standing in the, <laughs> the doorway with the bed just taunting them, and Midge, who has been asking him, like, what did you think of my act throughout the night, just sort of says, like, definitively, what did you think of my act? And the way he says, I thought it was sensational. It's so interesting because Midge is looking in a lot of other sequences for affirmation or praise or positive feedback or like a path forward from somebody who could unlock something for her. And it's like in that moment, it doesn't feel like that at all. It's like this is a person who she actually loves and respects. And for him to like see her clearly is clarifying in almost like a fundamental existential way. And I just think that's a very special thing that they have together. And I would love to see them have sex on this television show. (laughs) And it's just, but as you say, it's like, do we want that now? Or do we want this tension to continue? Yeah, I'm ready to be patient. The way they play with each other, like in that Miami episode, (sighs) when he pulls her on to the show that he's doing, and he's just playing with her. Frosting. He's just playing with her and she's playing with him. Or similarly in 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 the episode that he shows up in in Belmore, um, you know, when he's just like toughening her up on stage in a way that doesn't feel patronizing, it just feels supportive. He's like, I'm gonna do this thing. She's loving it. She loves like the attention, the rigor, the him treating her as an equal, all of that sort of stuff. Like, you know, it's 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 a beautiful thing. Um, something that I do know that happens this season. I don't think it's spoiler, but Lenny Bruce did a famous uh, set at Carnegie Hall mm, uh, in 1961, yeah, right? Or, or 60 or 61? 61? Something like that. And they're they're doing that this season. I do know that they're doing that. The la- the finale has like Carnegie Hall in the name, right? Is that like the- It's like how do you get to Carnegie Hall or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think the finale might be the Carnegie Hall set or something like that. Um, I listened to some of it. It's like a very famous comedy record and you can just like listen to it on YouTube if you want to. And I listened to some of it. It was really like, it's really interesting. His comedy style is so interesting. And Luke Kirby has done an incredible job throughout of doing not an invitation, but like an embodiment of a really interesting person. Um, my relationship with Lenny Bruce is interesting because um, I was aware of him, I think probably as a, as a lyric from rent more than anything else for a long time. But um uh, a guy I was dating really, really loved Lenny Bruce and specifically loved um, the movie Lenny starring Dustin Hoffman as Lenny Bruce, uh, which I really recommend. Uh, it's a really, it's a really good movie. It's not, it's not, it's not this tone at all. It's a very different tone uh, if, that, if that's what you're looking for. But um, I think this, there's a great YouTube video um, where someone has intercut uh, the real Lenny Bruce's appearance on the Steve Allen show with the version that they did in the show back and forth and it's line for line they did exactly what he did and it is so fun to see luke kirby again it doesn't feel like an impression it feels like an embodiment so all right this is not the marvelous lenny bruce but that's those those are our those are our thoughts and feelings um speaking of um speaking of handsome men mila ventimiglia there's a couple of p- people who are going to be on this season that we haven't seen yet mila ventimiglia famously of, of of Gilmore Girls and, and more recently of This Is Us, is credited as handsome man. That's his You're credit kidding. for this season. Tremendous. I don't know if he's <laughs> going to get a name eventually, but right now he is okay. known as handsome man. Uh, so I can only guess that he and Midge are going to have some sort of... Uh, but again, we only have four episodes left, so I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, Kelly Bishop, another famed Gilmore Girls alum, 
will be showing up. We've seen photos of her in costume, but we don't, we have no idea sort of she's here for an episode. She not only Gilmore Girls, she's a, she was a main character on Bunheads too. So she is like the queen of the Amy Sherman Palladino verse. I love Kelly Bishop. Um, she plays uh, Rory Gilmore's grandmother on the Gilmore Girls. She is a titular Gilmore girl. Um, <laughs> Rachel Brosnahan's real life husband, Jason Ralph from The Magicians, who I love, is allegedly in the season. There's all these people and I'm just sort of like, when? When are you when are you showing up? There's not a lot of time left. Though the show yeah. is is quite nimble at incorporating people for like one burst and then we never see them again and it somehow feels fine. <laughs> like someone Midge goes on a date with or somebody Rose is uh, the, the the parent of someone Rose is trying to matchmake for. I mean, there's so many different pathways here to uh, another another angry playwright who Abe has destroyed. <laughs> who knows <laughs> what the future? Yeah, holds. exactly. Because Jason Alexander is, is probably only in this season for like an episode and 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 change. That's probably the last we're going to see of him. But it's in a memorable part of of the season. And then lastly, you pointed out to me. I actually missed this that Reed Scott, uh, famed V Punk Reed, Reed Scott. Uh, showed up on on the TV set. Um, My favorite dirtbag, Dan Egan. Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> our favorite DC dirtbag. Uh, also, uh, Venom, surprise Venom breakout. That's right. Reed Scott. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it feels like, so we've seen him, Susie, you know, watching the tube, crashing with Midge. We've seen him, <laughs> I think, uh, who have we seen him interview? Groucho and yeah. Hitchcock? Are those the two that we've seen so far? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just feels like, I guess it's possible you would cast Reed Scott only to be seen through a like 11 inch black and white television inside of our televisions, but it seems unlikely. So is is Midge going to make her way onto that show at some point? Will she be there with Lenny or somebody else who's on the show being interviewed? Will they strike up some sort of rapport? Will he... Will he be a, a love interest? Will he be an, a, an adversary in some way? I feel like he's got to be a little more central. Not central central, but he's got to be. Got to be Mila a Ventimiglia, more. Jason Ralph, and Reed Scott are like, oh, to be Midge Maisel uh, in, in New York <sighs> no uh, in the springtime. No um, kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but th- that question about the television appearance uh, feeds into like my, my big unified theory about where we might be going. So... Um, as soon as I saw Midge in the Burlesque Club, my musical cooked brain thought of Gypsy, um, musical Gypsy, um, which premiered in 1959. It's based on um, the memoirs of uh, Gypsy Rosalie, who was a burlesque performer, comedian, author, TV personality, all these various things. Um, and then... <laughs> That, that's where my mind immediately went. And then I started putting together... I mean, like, it's very obvious once you dive even one inch deeper because they used a song from Gypsy, uh, Rose's Turn, and the promo for this season. Um, Santina Fontana's character is named Boise. There's a character named Dallas in, in Gypsy. Um, and then I didn't know this, but I found out while I was Googling around. Amy Sherman Palladino is writing a revival of Gypsy, the musical. She's making a movie. So I'm like, is this okay. just her practicing uh, for her Gypsy movie right. that she's going to make? Interesting. But I think it's interesting because, you know, uh, Gypsy Rosalie, like, like, she carved out a very rare spot in in a time. She she started her career earlier than Midge in, in like, the 30s. But she carved out a very rare spot for women to be body and funny and all this sort of stuff. And she found that world, like, she found that spot for herself 
in the burlesque world. Um, which which I I think is a really interesting potential spot for for Midge to do this. We've already seen like as as much as we can sort of roll our eyes a little bit at Midge's like busybodiness in the club, we've already seen it start to fill out a little bit more. We see more women in attendance. It's not just like the female waitresses who are stopping to listen to Midge. Like there are more women in attendance with the men there over the course of, you know, an episode and a half of her trying to improve the club. Gypsy Rosalie had her own TV show from 1965 to 1968. So are we headed towards the Midge Maisel hour? Like, is that, is she going to have a TV career at the end of this? And that's, that's where everything is going. That would be great. <laughs> that's I, that's brilliant. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I, I I'm I I am famous for latching onto a breadcrumb and and building yeah. a whole bread tower out of it. But like, not even Abe's uh, investigative reporter colleagues at the the Voice could have pieced that together so quickly. That's a uh, that feels right. And also, like on the one hand the culmination of something like really meaningful, but also based on the way you just outlined it, like actually close enough to achieve in the number of episodes that we have left, which feels important, like to not make some massive, massive leap back and then forward. It feels like the the pacing of all that will be pretty central. I love it. That's great. When will she have her moment with Lenny before or after the show <laughs> launches? <laughs> also, when will she, uh, you know, I'd love for Midge to ask Susie questions about her life as a friend instead of just making assumptions. Uh, you know, as you said, the classic Midge microcosm there where it's like, there's some nobility of intention, but it just manifests horribly. Like, let's ask Susie about her life and about what she actually wants and not just presume. That would be great. Midge on TV. Okay. It'll be nice for Ethan and Esther to be able to see her on TV so they remember who she is. You know? <laughs> we're, okay, we're going to talk about the kids in a second. And we're going to talk about Susie, but I want to I read this one passage from an article that I found about, um, about Gypsy Rosalie. Um, it says, in 1931, the long-legged brunette moved to New York and joined the Minsky Brothers burlesque show. Her quick wit, her quick intellect, and slow-paced stripping style quickly garnered a massive fan base. She tells sophisticated jokes while spending upwards of 15 minutes to remove one single glove. When crowds would lustily beg for Gypsy to remove more clothing, she famously would tease, oh boys, I couldn't, I'd catch a cold. I mean, that just sounds like Midge to me, that like Midge would spend 15 minutes taking off one glove and then, I mean, Gypsy would do the rest, but like Midge would be like, and that's it. And that's all I'm doing. You know what I mean? Meanwhile, I've told you these jokes. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see if that's what they're doing there. Um, you mentioned Susie and, and Midge. The um, the episode, I think it's Christopher Street, where Midge goes on this terrible date and then has Susie rescue her. And then Susie and Midge go back to the burlesque club for movie night and eat takeout Chinese together. That just underlines a strength of the Amy Sherman Palladino shows, which is the female friendship. You know what I mean? Like Lorelai Gilmore and... Um, the character Suki played by Melissa McCarthy on Gilmore Girls is like one of the stronger aspects of the show or Rory and her friendship with her best friend Lane, like, or, or this girl Paris, like these female friendships is something that, um, I've always loved about these shows. Um, often the midges or the Lorelai Gilmore's of the world or whatever will be too wrapped up in their own world to really fully understand. But this season has given because Susie is dealing with the grief and the loss of a friend, and we're going to talk, I think one of the strongest things we've seen this season is how all of that is treated. But because that is happening, self-centered Mitch 
has been doing a lot of caretaking of Susie. And I think that that's something that I've loved uh, about this season. What do you think? Yeah, I it's been one of my favorite parts of the season because f- f- it's 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 working for both for the characters on an individual level and collectively. You know, we get to see Susie like really interrogate how she wants to live her life and like what she wants to be spending her time trying to achieve and what it means to move forward through your life without thinking about those things. And then to see Midge, who we know can be a very caring, nurturing person, give that to Susie, who of course has spent a lot of the arc of the show tending to Midge and to Midge's needs. Now, of course, to be fair, Susie has also completely fucked over Midge many times and gotten lost in her own self-absorbed pursuits, which is, you know, that that connects back to what we were talking about earlier, where a lot of the characters on the show are struggling through their specific version of that same self-absorption, which like in some ways is human nature and in some ways is very specific to the way that the show examines human nature. But yeah, it's like lovely to see Midge (laughs) invite Susie into their home and then like go check on her and sit with her as Chester is eating the eggs. (laughs) You know, be there at the funeral. Just like be one of the people who is there, right? And the, the sequence where they sit and have dinner and talk after was was one of my favorites as well. So I like when we get to see the bond reinforced, like the reason that these people, and like you think of a moment where like Susie is is in the park with Harry and he's like, just drop her. Like, just move on, just drop her. And Susie's like, I'm not going to do that. And you actually need moments like that to reinforce why, you know? It's not just because Susie sees Midge's talent and a potential lucrative career and client, though that's, that's part of it. And that's, that's her prerogative as well, right? But it's because yeah. they have actually built something like fundamental. They have they have altered each other's lives. And so I like the quieter moments where the show reminds us of that. I want to get to something that you and I both really loved about the season. Before we do, I just want to like quickly kind of zip through some of my bigger stumbling blocks. One is that I love the production design on the show. It's incredible. Sometimes it can veer into just sort of like, 1960s fetishization. Mad Men could be guilty of this as well. Just just sort of like, I feel like almost a setup is there just so that this show can tell you we did a lot of research on what this would look like. And I would rather they do that research, obviously. And it's obvious that they've spent a lot of time looking at, I mean, there's some anachronisms, but a lot of time looking into like what Coney Island would look like at this time or whatever the case may be. And like sometimes those setups don't always serve the scene. Like I think the sequence on the Wonder Wheel in Coney Island, not, I don't know. It just kind of dragged on and felt like it felt, it didn't land the way that they, you know, that they wanted it to be hilarious. It did and funny. make me want funnel cake, but it didn't, it didn't <laughs> totally land. Yeah. Um, I've talked before about like some of the, some of the chasing down the wrong paths, I think for certain things like, uh, overemphasizing certain characters that should remain background characters, underutilizing certain characters like Lenny Bruce, who should be uh, main characters, uh, we feel like. And then also that sort of like white feminism, Midge, do even really like her sort of thing. The the missing children part, which was always a critique (laughs) of the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I think at least this season, the show has a bit more of a sense of humor about it. I think the whole thing with the like like, active parody. Yeah. The fake birthday (laughs) thing, like all of that stuff. Yeah. (laughs) You know, Jade's birthday. (laughs) Didn't work for us. Didn't work for your mother. She didn't, you know, I don't remember why, but it didn't work for her. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, it's a, it's an encouraging piece of self awareness that That's I hope great. the yeah. the the show continues to engage with. But like, it's another it's another aspect of Midge's privilege that she can foist the kids off on someone while she's gall- gallivanting around doing her thing. Initially, that like sort of Midge is a bad mom critique is something I bristled at because I don't know Don Draper's a bad dad, so like I don't I don't. I don't want to hold Midge to a different standard of of care, but I like that the show is sort of actively playing with it. Any sort of bigger stumbling blocks of the season that you want to talk about before we get to maybe our our favorite thing we've seen thus far? uh, I think we covered them. Yeah, I think we hit on them. Okay, so something that happened uh, between last season and this is that uh, Brian Tarantina, who played Bootsy on Gilmore Girls and, um, you know, was Jackie on this show, died of a drug overdose. And this happens sometimes that that actors die while a show is going on and a show has to figure out how to handle it. Like, does this character move away? Do we recast them? You know, how are we going to handle this death? I don't, I've rarely seen a show really take the moment the way that this show did with Jackie's death, how it's affected Susie and how the eulogy, her realization of who he was that she didn't, you know, like the show didn't pretend that Jackie was Susie's best friend. So they cooked into this whole plot, this idea that like he was such an interesting person and she was too busy doing her own thing to really notice um, that that's, that sort of adds to her grief. I just thought it was, Absolutely beautiful, and I and I I love the handling of all of that. Um, what do you think? My favorite part of the season so far. <laughs> I was yeah. like, so moved by this. Yeah. It was really, really, really touching and profound. You know the just complete disbelief that Susie feels when she sees that empty room and then is looking across to a room full of people celebrating somebody else's life and just taking the time, the time to remember. And again, in the, in the signature way of the show, in this really poignant stretch, there's still this injection of like almost shocking levity. Like when, when Susie is talking about, it was her name, Darla, the woman yeah. from the, the love letter. She's like, she better be dead. <laughs> You know, I'm crying and cracking up at the same time. And it's like, that is the show at its absolute, absolute apex. But I think a couple of the things that touched me the most in that sequence, one, again, that just realization of what it could mean to live your entire life and have nobody feel like bothered to, to come think about you and to show that they cared and how absolutely like anguish inducing that would be not only for the friends and family of that person who were thinking about, well, why, where are all the other people who knew Jackie, but then what it sort of forces you to think about with your own life. Like, what does it mean to live a life that leaves no mark on other people? Right. You know, not to like go all Tywin Lannister, but like what that's, that's what legacy is, right? It's like, what's left left of you when you're gone. And then to juxtapose that with showing us that it wasn't that Jackie hadn't lived a life, that he had. And it had been a a full life and his own life and not one that other people knew a lot about. And maybe that was his choice to keep those things private, but maybe nobody ever bothered to ask him. And like, I thought that was devastating. Like the box full of memories and relics from this this period of time in his life that, that Susie, who was around him constantly, knew nothing about. That was like so heartbreaking. The war medals, the dance contest uh, ribbon, the love letters, like all of that. I just, yeah, I, I thought it was, 
it was so smart and emotionally profound um, to take this very side character and all of a sudden make him the most important thing in the world. And, and baked into all of that is this sort of blinkered self-centeredness that these characters have because Susie crashes someone else's memorial in order to do this. And like, I'm not mad at her for doing it. And she has that moment at the end where she acknowledges sort of like what she's done, but like, that's appalling what she does, but we're with her. And I, and I have to think, I don't know the answer to this, but I have to think that her desire to, you know, she, she says something about like, you know, I want to make damn sure that no one else ends up like in, in my shitty apartment like this sort of thing. I think that's why she pulls the magician out of the bar. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, she's looking for clientele or whatever, but like, I think, uh, you know, she sees someone who's, who's a lost boy as well. And she wants to pull him up, you know, it's an interesting dichotomy and distance inside the show as you're, as you're observing, because to channel something about someone else into like purpose for yourself is, is meaningful and good. It is also then instantly about you and there's some irony at play there. Yeah. But if Susie can make something meaningful of that, that like dawning realization, I think that that does in, in a Susie specific way and in a a smaller way than the the show's central focus taps back into some of what was so successful of of, of the beginning of the premise of the show in the first place, that moment of awakening and like what you choose to do and how you choose to alter the course of your own life when something fundamentally changes about how you see the world. And so it's nice to have as tragic as the reason is. I think it's nice to have that back in the show again. Yeah. Uh, I have no idea what will happen with the magician. I like what you said earlier about, you know, giving us some more of these maybe uh, pathways to and excuses for like some sort of surrealist uh, hyper stylized sequences. That would be cool. But I just thought this was beautiful. And, and as is, you know, always the case with like one of Alex's show, show showcase um, sequences, just like masterfully acted. I mean, she's, she's so, good. so good. She's so good. It's like riveting. Uh, um, so let's do a quick wrap up. What do we what do we want for the rest? We have four more episodes. Car- we're, we're, we're going to Carnegie Hall. Mila Ventimiglia, handsome man is showing up. <laughs> what do we want for the rest of the season? You know, it's a great question. I have a sort of weird answer. Like, I don't, I don't really know. It's one of the few shows that I watch where I don't have either like a laundry list of predictions or like really fervent, closely held desires and expectations other than the ones I've already shared with you today. I don't know if I have like an endpoint for Midge in mind. I guess my hope is a little bit more like cheesy and saccharine, which is like, I hope we get to laugh a lot and I hope we get to see the characters we've invested a lot of time and make some sort of progress in their lives. And I don't know exactly what that looks like for Midge or what I want it to look like. I would like her to move forward and achieve something. I, I think that's what I what I want. What exactly that looks like, I, I don't know. You know, I want her to remain like staunch in her convictions because I think that's one of the reasons I'm compelled by her. I'd like her to do that in tandem with like learning a little bit more about other people the, and having the, sex with Lenny Bruce. <laughs> right. <laughs> we have, we haven't talked about your enemy, uh, Joel that much, but I, fan I, of Joel. I, I'll I know you that. don't like Joel, but I, I think the show wants us to like Joel. I think the show wants us to be invested in his journey away from the fragile ego threatened person that he was in when we met him. 
to hopefully someone who could stand shoulder to shoulder with Midge and be like, I've, I've built this thing, this club for myself. I'm excited to support you and what you've built. There's still some of those like weird, you know, because it's, it's obvious that he's, I think, still carrying a torch for her. That makes me not like the fact that he is um, telling this up. Like, I feel like it, he's kind of stringing this other woman along in that, in that regard. Uh, also, he, you know, to speak to the show's larger issue sometimes, I think he, his ignorance of what meeting his parents for her means as an Asian woman in 1960. Um, I think that, you know, that's a frustrating. And also, as you, as you mentioned to me, his dislike of soup uh, is, is a real black mark on his character. But I do think that if, if Midge and Lenny cannot be end game because of 1966, I think the show is doing a thing where we're going to circle back to these two people meeting each other in a place where they can be with each other in a, in a, as equals, you know? Okay. I'd like to recant my prior statement from mere moments ago where I said with you on this podcast, that I didn't have anything I was actively rooting for because (laughs) after hearing you say that I do, I'm actively rooting for that not to happen. I do not want Midge and Joel to reconcile. I think them finding some sort of, understanding and like peace with each other and the ability to coexist to co-parent their (laughs) their invisible children, (laughs) absentee children, et cetera. And they're so present in each other's lives in a way that I, a child of divorce find, um, you know, like actively confounding, but also like (laughs) sort of touching and sweet. Uh, I, I think that working toward that continued support and like rooting for each other. Great. I do not want them to get back together again. I really, really, really don't want that for Midge. Midge deserves it, more than Joel. All of his <laughs> progress aside, Midge deserves more than Joel. If Gilmore Girls is a is a roadmap that we can look to, Lorelai Gilmore on that show, who's raising Rory by herself, has a amical relationship with Rory's dad, Christopher. They get back together at a certain point, and then they break up again because they're like, "No, this really isn't like yeah. what we but want." We've done in the that end. already. Like they started, they got remarried together again, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like did the whole thing again, and now they're good, right? <laughs> so Let's maybe, maybe we've already moved past the Christopher phase of all of this. All right. Well, that's. <laughs> I mean, that's Maisel. I think I want to see her conquer TV. Uh, and for Susie to thrive because she's the manager of like one of the biggest. Yeah. You want Susie to become a mob capo? <laughs> when he's um, if that's what she wants, yes. But I don't. I don't want her to be safe and protected. Um, and like for Midge to be Lucille Ball or whatever she wants to be. Um, and that's the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And then for Midge to to get some self awareness. I think it's I think she's almost there and I think she could get there. And also for for uh Abe to be the the most beloved theater critic in all of uh, Village Voice history. I love this career change for him. It makes me really happy. Tony Shalhoub, king of my heart. <laughs> <laughs> okay, la- okay, last but not least cuz you already you already I put this in the notes and then you told let me know that maybe this isn't a good question to ask you. But I'm going to ask you just in case. Like <laughs> how do you feel about the way in which like Jewish culture is represented on this show? And is it something that you respond to on this show? Oh yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, as a, a Jewish person really enjoy the, <laughs> that aspect of it. I am not a, uh, religious person, but I always enjoy seeing the 
social elements of Judaism yeah. <laughs> and Jewish culture explored. And uh, it's boy, yeah, there are certainly uh, when 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 my husband and I watch the show, there are a lot of moments where we're like, yeah, this reminds me of, you know, an aunt or a grandparent or, or something like that. In general, yes, I it's certainly one of the elements that I enjoy about the show. <laughs> it, Abe getting real-time canceled at a bar mitzvah is... Yeah, uh, the bar mitzvah sequence was pretty special. <laughs> it was pretty great. Pretty enjoyed great. that. Loved the way that Moish was prepared <laughs> to to go to the Bema and for not for not <laughs> all for not. Um, all right, so that is that is our mid season check in with Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I think we'll probably be back for the finale, but but we'll see what happens. And um, until we meet again at a, at a bar or bat mitzvah near you, Mallory mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> Rubin, where can folks find you? You can find me with you over yeah. on the Ringerverse, recording House of R. Where can they find you, Joanna? It's not a bat, bat mitzvah. It's a Batman. That's that's not a good <laughs> joke because they don't sound the same. Uh, yeah, you can find me here in the Prestige TV podcast feeds talking about various shows over in the Ringerverse. Uh, I'm filling in for Amanda, who's out on leave on the big pick uh, now and again. So um, I'm around talking about bats and other things. Uh, shout out to freshly minted senior producer Steve Allman for his work on the show. Woo! <laughs> And we will see you. Bye. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.